everyone, and welcome to MLS Assist, a podcast created to give insight into the tactical side of Major League Soccer. I'm your host, Joe Lowry, and I'm joined by my co-host, Jordan Angeli. Jordan, how are you doing out there in Columbus? I'm doing great, Joe. Life is good. First win of the season. Just chilling on this Monday. Get to talk about soccer some more. So all is good. How are you? I'm doing well. I think we both got our soccer fix this weekend. You out there commentating the crew's win over NYCFC and me sitting and watching a ton of games on my computer. We basically did the same thing, right? We really did. (laughs) (laughs) So how was, I think some of our listeners wanted to know, and I want to know this as well. How was your experience calling this home opener for the crew? It was amazing. I have gotten such a warm welcoming from the crew faithful and everybody that has been supporting the club for 25 years. And I was just really excited to get out there and do what I love to do and do what I've been doing for eight years, which is call soccer games. And this part of it and being there and calling the game felt like the most normal part of my last (laughs) two and a half weeks, because with the moving and changing cities and, um, It just felt really nice to get there. And it also feels good when you win. Yeah, winning is always nice. I think that's a a cure-all for everything, even moving across the country, right? Right. Yeah, I'll take it. So on this episode, our first regular season episode, Jordan, we've been doing preseason episodes for about a month now, and now we get to do this for real. Um, Feels good. It feels really good um, to finally have some games to digest and to watch and to analyze. And that's what we're going to do on this show. We're going to start out by digging into two games, one from Saturday, one from Sunday. We're going to really go deep on those. We're going to analyze them. We're going to go back and forth and have those be some longer segments. Then, Jordan, you and I are going to dig into some tactical tidbits, a little bit shorter, some observations on some other games that we watched this weekend. Just go back and forth on those. And then to close out the show, we took listener questions on Twitter. An overwhelming response. Tons of questions. Unfortunately, we won't be able to answer them all. But we'll, we're going to take a crack at a lot of them. So we'll end the show with those listener questions. Jordan, are you good to go ahead and get started on our first game? I'm good to go. But I just want to say thank you to all the listeners again and say even your questions, even if we don't answer them, they make us think in a different way and recognize or start to look for things. So we really appreciate you guys uh, giving us some shouts when we tweet that out. Absolutely. Yeah, it was great to see the responses on that and great questions as well, like really good questions. But we'll talk about all that later on. Jordan, the first game that we're going to dig into is LAFC versus Inter-Miami. LAFC's one new win at Bank of California Stadium. Jordan, to start off with this match, how did both teams set up? What kind of approaches were they using? What kind of formations were they using? Just give us a little bit of the fundamentals of this match. All right, Joe, I'll start with LAFC. You can hit us with Inter-Miami after this, but LAFC is doing what we've seen them do, playing in a 4-3-3 uh, with the three front runners who maybe give a lot of teams nightmares, Rossi, <laughs> Vela, and Brian Rodriguez, those three up front. But this is a squad who is a possession-oriented team. They were picked up right where they left off last season and really left off in Champions League just a, a week ago where they go forward with numbers, they switch and interchange in their lines, and we saw a lot of that against this Inter-Miami squad. We did. Diego Alonso set up this Inter-Miami team uh, in a way, we, I mean, we didn't know how he was going to set the squad up, but he, he came out in a 4-2-3-1 in possession. Not a lot of possession for Inter-Miami. Most of the time, they were content to let LAFC have the ball, although they, Inter-Miami did get forward defensively and press a lot, which we'll talk about a little bit later. But Inter-Miami set up in that 4-2-3-1. Robbie Robinson, a new draft pick at, starting up top. Matthias Pellegrini, Rodolfo Pizarro, and Lewis Morgan as those three attacking midfielders underneath. And they were content to sit a little bit deeper, to transition quickly once they, once they won the ball to a 
avoid LAFC having enough time to counterpress them too effectively. Those, that's just kind of a general overview of this game. Jordan, starting with LAFC and their performance, what, what sort of stuck out to you from this match, from this one nil win from Bob Bradley's team? Well, I'm still so intrigued with the way that Blackman plays for LAFC. And I talked about it a little bit at the end of last season. But when you're watching them play against this Inter-Miami squad and because they sat back a little bit and we're kind of switching between this really high pressure defense and a little bit more of like a, a mid to low block, you got to see these buildups from LAFC and Blackman is almost like an additional midfielder. Wouldn't you say, Joe, the, the way that he plays, he kind of almost occupies that like right midfield spot in like a diamond formation, because when he comes inside and he LAFC starts to attack, when he's in that space, then Vela can float wide and they can isolate Vela. Uh, don't you think every movement in this squad really is to isolate Vela? Uh, oh, 100, 100%. They're just trying to get him in a place where he is 1v1 with someone or has the ability to go at them on the dribble. And with Miami, especially some of the weaknesses in this back line. I mean, we saw Ben Sweat struggle with Carlos Vela. We saw Alvis Powell again struggle on the other side, mostly with Brian Rodriguez, Roman Torres as well in the middle. The quality of Inter Miami's back line was, was weak and LAFC exposed them with those kinds of movements. When you bring Blackman inside, you can isolate Vela on the wing like you're talking about and then just let him go. And one of the things I thought was really interesting is not, it's not only in a, an attacking sense because Blackman, his movement, Yes, it's off of Vela, but I believe that the two kind of read each other well. And it's one of the things that's really fluid with this LAFC squad is their interchangeability in different lines and different channels of the field. And one of the attacks in the 24th minute started on uh, the, a long diagonal ball from the, the left side to the right side of Miami's attack. And when LAFC is defending, Jordy, Jordan Harvey picks up the ball and he doesn't get to go forward very often because there is so much attention with Blackman and his ability to get forward. But Jordan Harvey in this instance dribbles forward, ends up making a a pass into Blessing who can't connect with Vela on the far side. But what happens is Blackman is in, in that inside midfielder position as an outside back. And so he's occupying this space in the midfield and it allows him to counter press so quickly, win the ball back in the attacking third. And then LAFC, they had six or seven numbers in the attacking third there to attack. So that's the difference I think that Blackman makes as an outside back. Having someone inside like that to counterpress is such a big part of, of why you play with that kind of inner seam fullback. If you bring Blackman inside, you have an extra number in midfield to avoid getting exposed so quickly. That's why I think Bob Bradley loves to bring Blackman inside, just for the reasons that you detailed there, Jordan. I thought in CONCACAF Champions League play, he was exposed a little bit, but it was their first game of the season down in Mexico against Leon, where I thought he looked really poor as a right back tucking inside. And then Yakovic as well just didn't have the legs to cope with Leon's attack. But in both of their games, since then, I think I've been proven a little bit wrong by Blackman's positioning and his ability to step into midfield and win the ball. He's looking a lot more comfortable. Yes, into Miami, not of the same quality as Leon down in Liga Mekis, but having someone who's comfortable moving and rotating into different vertical channels on the wing and then tucking inside to win the ball and press is is fantastic. And Bradley is going to absolutely love using that option throughout the season, even if LAFC's backline changes a little bit with their personnel. Yeah, and with those tactics that we're talking about with Blackman and as an outside back there tucking so uh, so far inside is that there's going to be times where they're going to be exposed on the counterattack. And you mentioned that Inter-Miami knew that this is going to be something because that they could expose LAFC with. 
when LAFC attack, they, they go for it. And if they get their defensive midfielder or their get past that, if the attacking team gets past that line of their defensive midfielder, it's really 1v1 battles. And LAFC is okay with those 1v1 battles in defense while they retreat and bring players back defensively. Is that something that you felt like Inter-Miami did a good job of, of counterattacking in those spaces that LAFC left exposed? I thought Miami really tried, and Diego Alonso's game plan, I think, was a wise one, just with how kind of this weird position his squad is in right now in terms of its makeup. You and I talked about that on a previous episode with the fact that Miami's roster is still kind of being shaped. It's being molded. So the idea from Diego Alonso to win the ball or when they win the ball to go quickly and transition into the space try to transition into the space behind LAFC's back line. I thought was really smart, but it didn't come off a whole lot. They didn't Miami didn't create very many chances in those transition moments that I think Diego Alonso would have wanted them to. A lot of the balls were intended to go to Robbie Robinson as an outlet, and he he wasn't able to create enough separation especially from Eddie Segura, I didn't think, to get the ball in space and to be able to really go and cause danger behind LAFC's back line. Maybe at that point if you can get Robinson the ball, you force him to drop a little bit and be a little less aggressive with their possession structure. But they, the service to Robinson wasn't particularly good. And if he did get the ball, it, it, he wasn't able to do a whole lot with it. So the idea was there. But I think LAFC, it played out exactly like LAFC wanted to in terms of their ability to shut down those sorts of transitional attacks. And just to mention those service opportunities that you are talking about, I do think Inter-Miami found themselves in places where Robinson would run the channel and try to get the ball into space when he couldn't win the foot race with Segura. He would pull it, the moments where he pulled it back and then connected the midfield and allowed those players who were in transition trying to help him in possession. If he could find that connection, I think there were opportunities where Inter-Miami got to the wings, were able to drive to the end line, but then it was that last service, right? It was, can they pick somebody out with everyone from LAFC recovering defensively, trying to get back into their box? And it was, you know, that's the hardest part of the game, trying to connect that final pass in the final third with all of those numbers crowding a box. And for Miami, I think two guys they would have liked to see get on the ball a little bit more are Will Trapp deeper in midfield and Rodolfo Pizarro higher up the field. If those two players, who are probably their most skilled offensive contributors, at least, I mean, outside of Pellegrini, but he is more of a 1v1 attacker from what I've seen of him so far. He brings that creativity a little bit wider, at least that's how Alonso used him in this match against LAFC. But they need, I think, going forward, allowing Trapp and Pizarro more opportunities to get on the ball, even in those transition moments when they're going a little bit more direct. Maybe you play Robinson as the outlet and he he finds Pizarro who plays off of him. Some of that chemistry between those players is clearly still developing. Pizarro came in late to preseason, Mm -hmm. where Robinson's new to the league, wasn't expected to be the starter, but because of Julian Carranza's injury, he's now in the lineup. Once those, ke- once that chemistry starts to build a little bit more, we could be looking at Miami as a much more dangerous transition team. And I believe, and I, I'll write a little bit about this in a story I have coming out for the Athletic that should be out by the time this episode is out. Miami also has the potential to be a little bit more of a patient possession team. Alonso likes to hold on to Absolutely. the ball. You bring in a guy like Will Trapp, and that's the signal for that, right? You can tell in that moment, okay, yeah, sure, every good team's going to transition forward, but when you have Will Trapp in defensive midfield, you want to sometimes control the ball and have him dictate possession. Well, it was a really good point because one of the things I noticed on the broadcast is Taylor Twelman in the 74th minute spoke about finally seeing Will Trapp playing in a deeper lying central midfield role and able to do what he does best, right? Is pick those balls out from really the middle third into the defense 
defensive or the attacking third for his own team. And this ball went into Robinson. He took it off his chest and tried to score. It was probably one of the best opportunities for Robinson in front of goal. But the reason that we weren't seeing that from Will Trapp is because there was no possession for exactly. Inter Miami. And it, the the only way he's going to be able to find that space and use the buildup on the what was this time the right side. It was a little interplay with Lee Wynn on one side and the other central midfielder. And then it switched the point of attack. And that's when Will Trapp is isolated in this little pocket defensively. And he can, as the defenders shift over from their left to their right, then he can play that diagonal ball back across the grain and find Robinson. So I think that is something that we're going to see more of from Will Trapp, but it is based on possession. One other thing that I want to touch on before we move on to our second game of this episode is Inter Miami's defensive setup. We we mentioned it very briefly in the opening to this game, but Miami came out and they they pressed LAFC, which is kind of a bold move to be honest. Like in your first game, you're playing away from home, you're willing to step high. I was shocked by it. It was surprising, not in a way surprising because we know Diego Alonso likes to be on the front foot in matches, but also that is truly a bold move against a very, very good LAFC team who have already had two very competitive matches. But they came out, Diego Alonso came out and pressed out of a 4-4-2 shape. It went from sort of a 4-4-2 mid-block, higher up the field. When they stepped up, it, it became sort of a staggered 4-4-2 with one of the two central midfielders stepping high to mark uh, mark LAFC's central defensive midfielder. The front two for Miami would go and mark the other two center backs. And then this is where I thought it started to get really interesting in terms of how they were set up. The other central midfielder would drop a little bit deeper and mark the ball side central midfielder for LAFC, and they'd sort of funnel the ball over to the strong side. The the strong side winger, sometimes that would be Lewis Morgan or Pellegrini, depending on what side LAFC were building up, would step to the ball side fullback so they didn't have a lot of space on the strong side to play down the wing. And then the weak side winger for Inter-Miami would tuck into central midfield a little bit and just keep an eye on that weak sided central midfielder for LAFC. So everyone's kind of shifting towards one side. Uh, Miami are able to overcome that disadvantage that they have in midfield by bringing the wingers in a little bit tighter. Then they funnel the ball towards the wing and they win it back. That that setup, I thought, was a really well-designed press by Diego Alonso against a 4-3-3 that I wouldn't be surprised, honestly, if we see some other teams mimic um, against LAFC later on this season. Did you notice that? I saw that that shift and it was almost like they were connected by strings. In the first half, there was a, a clip of it that you could see exactly what you're talking about. And we'll try to get you guys that clip because it was like such perfection of the movement defensively by Inter Miami that I think it was to my eyes were just like so happy to see that. It was it was really nice. I was pleasantly yeah. surprised. Miami's offensive work I wasn't especially high on in this game, but that's understandable, I think, just because of the way their roster is structured right now and their opponent, the situation, all of those things. But the defensive work I thought was really encouraging, even with some some players that we hadn't seen in Major League Soccer before, even with Will Trapp sort of anchoring the defensive midfield, which is not something that's especially his strong suit. I thought those two things in particular were very encouraging to see Miami come out, go toe-to-toe with LAFC defensively, step high up the field, try to win the ball, and then transition, even if those transitions didn't go exactly like they'd hoped. Joe, all right. I think that's a good place to stop talking about this first game and transition to our next game, which is FC Dallas and Philadelphia Union. You ready to chat about this one? Oh, I'm ready. Jordan, why don't you go ahead and, and walk us through FC Dallas's setup and then I'll hit us with the Union. Okay, FC Dallas set up in a 4-2-3-1, something that we expected them to come out in. And they had Andrasik 
as that lone striker, the Cobra setting up the point for them. And then in their midfield, they had Jesus Ferreira as that number 10 player, which we talked about him in a previous episode, playing in that 10 spot and what he can do for them attacking wise. They were out with without Pax and Pomichol for the majority of the match. But this was a typical setup that we expected to see from FC Dallas. Yeah, then with the Union, they they played something that we expected as well. They came out in a 4-4-2 diamond. Jim Curtin had Brendan Aronson as the point of that diamond. Jaime Montero and Bedoya as the two eights. And then Craval deeper in midfield. They use that diamond to try to press higher up the field to allow FC Dallas some possession, but then to step up, funnel the ball to a side, sort of like what we saw Miami do, although the, the pressing structure was very different. They had that same sort of idea to press the ball against the sideline to try to win it and really pin FC Dallas back when they tried to build up, because that's something that Luchi Gonzalez squad really does like to do so when you're watching this game Joe because for me it took a little bit for this game to find the kind of rhythm it was it settled into both teams looking almost in mid blocks for about 15 minutes in. they both defensively were in these mid blocks and weren't high pressing as much as maybe we would uh, typically see from either squad yeah, it did take a while for this game to settle in, but I think around that 15-20 minute mark, we started seeing, at least to my eye, what was sort of the crux of this game. And that, to me, was Philadelphia Union's diamond press versus Dallas's buildup. Um, so they, they would try to step high up the field. They'd have their front two against the, you know, FC Dallas's center backs and try to funnel the ball towards the sideline like we talked about. Dallas initially struggled to deal with that pressure. Bedoya kept closing down Ryan Hollingshead and, and he didn't really have any short options to play with the ball. Eventually, after after a couple of times of Hollingshead having no room to pass and either playing it out of bounds or having the ball turned over, maybe Reto Ziegler, had, he was dispossessed a couple of times as well. After a few of those mistakes that fortunately for Dallas didn't result in any clear-cut attacking goal-scoring opportunities for the Union, they started to adjust a little bit. The central midfield for Dallas started to be a little bit more active with their positioning. Jesus Ferreira would rotate over to the side or Thiago Santos or Tanner Testman would, would be more active with their movement dropping to come show to the ball and allow Dallas to play out of that diamond press. That, I think, as the game wore on, allowed Dallas to be a little bit more comfortable with the ball. And eventually, those those sorts of things gave them more time on the ball, comfortable in possession, which is what Gonzalez wants to see from his squad. Eventually, in the second half, they were able to get on the score sheet. That, that for me, is kind of the crux of this game. I would agree with you. And I think that it took Dallas a while to figure out how to play through the midfield and utilize the players that they have in the midfield in order to get on the ball and and start to dictate the pace that they wanted to have. One of the key things that I noticed about them in the second half right before they scored the first goal of the game is instead of playing in that uh, 4-2-3-1, they almost looked like they were playing in more of a 4-3-3 with Tessman being uh, almost looking like he was... uh, like if you could take a diamond shaped midfield and cut it in half, they were in a triangle that way. So hmm. Tessman sliding up between Ferreira and Santos behind him. Santos then playing in just a, a one player holding mid situation and Tessman could kind of create out of that. I think what happened with that is then it sucked the diamond shape for Philadelphia over to one side, which allowed Reggie Cannon to take this internal outside back run, which led to the goal. And after that, right after the goal, actually Dallas ended up switching formations and going into a three, five, two. And I think that was the best thing that happened in the game. 
Yeah, I love the three five two. I think that little adjustment, I know for a fact that FC Dallas worked on that in preseason, being able to switch to that shape either from the start of the match or later on in the game. That allowed them to to push the wing backs a little bit higher. Reggie Kanan could get forward. I I enjoyed that little switch. Jordan, why did you like it so much? I liked it because it it switched the advantage in the midfield. It went from being at a disadvantage in uh, 4-2-3-1 with that diamond midfield for Philadelphia overtaking you and struggling to have numbers there. And it, it puts you at an advantage saying, okay, now we have five players in this midfield set up. We can tuck in our, our wing back if we need to, them to help with the opposite side, uh, outside midfielder in that diamond shape. And it really allowed those two wing backs to get forward, which dragged the two outside mids in the diamond back a little bit defensively for Philadelphia. Yeah, that that change really was an interesting move. I I appreciate from Gonzalez having he wants to play with four in the back primarily. I think those are the kinds of rotations, especially in build up, that he wants to see from this team. But having the knowledge and the understanding of when to switch that shape up a little bit, and and like you talked about, Jordan, depending on how the opposition is set up, having the ability to flex to rotate to a different formation is huge, right? Because then when Dallas play a team that stacks the midfield, or when they're trying to protect a lead later on, in this case they were doing both of those things against the Union. In those types of moments, Dallas can swap so easily. They bring Brasson in off the bench. Hedges and Ziegler can can play in a three center back system then Reggie Cannon can get up the side they have so many flexible players Hollingshead can play kind of anywhere as that right-footed left back which is something that's so unique on the left side of Dallas's defense Santos is a versatile midfielder I really liked what I saw from him in this game Testament as a young guy coming in getting his first MLS start big kid he's versatile in midfield smooth on the ball Paxton Pomacal can play anywhere Ferreira same thing like I can go on and on with these guys that's not even talking about the forwards Dallas have so much positional flexibility I mean <laughs> one more thing on that we saw Reggie Cannon play as a winger against Seattle in in the MLS Cup playoffs last year playing sometimes even on the left wing as a right back just so many of these options that uh, Luchi Gonzalez has to work with he's got to love that especially in a game against a team like the Union you have so much aggressive pressing in them sometimes you need to bring in a guy off the bench to change things up a little bit to give your team a little bit of flexibility a little bit more energy off the bench and we saw that a little bit with Paxton Pomichel at the end of the match and there's there's things that affect the percentage of possession that Dallas had after they scored the goal. Of course, then Philadelphia have to start to press and open up a little bit more and start to get after Dallas to get that equalizing goal. But once they switched to this 3-5-2, they actually had more possession and they were able to play little passes and uh, triangle positions within the midfield and even using their the front two attackers to come back in and be a part of the buildup. I thought that there was some really good movements from Dallas after they switched to the three five two. Yeah, I really like that for them. I think I'm becoming more and more of a sucker for a three at the back formation. We 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 mentioned this a little bit in an early episode of the show, talking about how there aren't a lot of teams in MLS that use a three center back formation. We'll talk a little bit about the impact later on in the show and what Thierry Henry is doing with them. But just the idea of having that great spacing in possession, you can rotate the ball easily along your back line with that center back kind of sitting a little bit deeper. You can rotate the ball even against pressure then you have numbers in midfield in a 3-5-2 or in a 3-4-3 maybe the number nine drops in a little bit deeper there are just so many things you can rotate the wing backs and the, and the wider midfielders there are lots and lots of options that you have and for Gonzalez to be able to go back to the shape consistently I think is going to be so huge for Dallas as the season progresses with the flexibility that they have okay we haven't talked much about Philadelphia's and I'm just going to say 
Aronson is good, man. He is. He is. He's. What do you think he's good at, Jordan? I'm really curious about that, actually, because I don't think people really know what he's good at. We just kind of see a young attacking midfielder in MLS. But what's your kind of outlook on him? A couple of things that I noticed about him this game that I really appreciated is his transitional moments. So he is a creative type. He wants to get on the ball and help this union squad get forward and find those final passes. But when he so when you're that player, you're going to lose the ball a lot. And his ability to then quickly go into a counter press and put defenders under a lot of pressure. He might not win the ball, but he's at least dictating where the ball is going to go next, allowing the defenders behind him to set up in that time and hopefully win the first and second balls. I really liked that, but he's good on the dribble. And I think one of the things that this union squad has within their diamond shape, especially those front four, the front three of the four is they can dribble out of pressure really well. They all have the ability uh, to break pressure on the dribble, which is essential. I think in modern MLS that you have to have players on your team that can do that. Not just front runners, but in the midfield too. I think you see that um, in a variety of players across MLS. Darlington Nagby comes to mind when when I think of that first and foremost. But Aronson under pressure, he, he doesn't seem like he's rattled by it at all. And he just finds his way out. Or if he doesn't, he's right there to hound the player and try to win the ball back. Yeah, for Aronson, I think a lot of that probably comes down to how the union train and how he was developed as a player's own personal skill set. But just going up against the diamond press every single day or or maybe the opposition yeah. team in training is playing the other team system, whatever it is, high energy, high intensity guys that the union have brought in to breed that sort of competitiveness, to breed that you know aggressive nature from even their central midfielders. I think your assessment of him was absolutely spot on. One last thing with him is I think when you're thinking about a diamond, it doesn't always look like a diamond. And and one of the things that works really well for Aronson is he's his ability to float and for the other players to fill in the space. So there's sometimes where he's dribbling out of pressure in the central part of the field and Bedoya will come inside to pull a defender away. And then as Aronson connects out of it, Bedoya will then find himself back outside. Like the way that they work off of each other uh, suits Aronson's skills on the ball too. And I just, I'm interested and really excited to see what he can do throughout the rest of the season. We touched on Aronson. I want to talk about three players really quick, briefly from this game before we move on to our next segment. Okay. Three guys for me, two FC Dallas players. The first two are Tiago Santos and Paxton Pomacal. I think the way these two guys move with the ball. Pop McCall comes off the bench late in the match. He brings so much energy with and without the ball. He he made life miserable for the Philadelphia Union, tracking everywhere, moving, intercepting play. I mean, he combined with Testament a little bit for that third goal. I mean, for that second goal, excuse me, for FC Dallas. And he created that goal because he broke pressure on the dribble and just ate up space in order to then connect with Testament. Like, that's exactly what I'm talking about of these skills of midfielders to be able to to beat pressure on the dribble. Yeah, Pomacal has that has that skill set for sure. He's tough to play against. He's good on the ball. I mean, his finish with his left foot, he can he can use both feet as well. So we see that on a consistent basis, even just having him come off the bench, being a real energizer bunny for the end of this game and then scoring that kind of the finishing goal to put FC Dallas up 2-0. Pomacal really impressed me in this game. That's not surprising. I think we know what we get from him at this point as long as he's healthy. The other guy for Dallas before one player for Philadelphia is Thiago Santos. Touched on him extremely briefly earlier, but his ability to come in as a six, 
I hadn't, I'd never seen him play before. I'd never watched any film on him. I thought he was fantastic. I think he has the ability to cover ground well, which is helpful when Dallas puts so many numbers forward, when they have possession in the opposition half. He covers ground. He's good on the ball as well. He can get forward. As long as someone rotates in behind him, that'll be fun for Dallas this season. He's just extremely quality on the ball, without the ball. The way he reads the game seems to be perfect for Luchi Gonzalez's midfield. Huge fan of seeing him in this match for the first time. And then one guy for the Union. Jordan, you were talking about their, the front three of their diamonds ability to dribble specifically about Aronson Jaime Montero is another guy for sure Uh, Montero has has that sort of same skill set I think at times he tries to do a little bit too much but on the left side of their diamond he is such a creative player especially because there isn't a lot of other creativity in the side besides Aronson and maybe Bedoya having Montero on the left side to kind of conduct play he can rotate up top if Aronson shifts a little bit to the left side he has that flexibility like we were talking about with Dallas Montero has flexibility to rotate in midfield and he's he's probably their most creative player so just for our listeners to keep an eye on those three guys as the season progresses I think I think you won't regret keeping at least half an eye on those players that's good that's a nice little uh, ending to our analysis of these two games all right so we've gone through LAFC's 1-0 win over Inter Miami and FC Dallas's 2-0 home win over the Philadelphia Union Jordan I think it's time we get into tactical tidbits don't you Tactical tidbits with Joe and Jordan. <laughs> it's perfect. We'll get Bobby Washaw on to do a British accent too with us maybe sometime. Yes. <laughs> so for the first tactical tidbit, I'm going to start us off. I want to talk a little bit about the Montreal impact and their overall shape and their their strategy versus the New England Revolution. Montreal um, had this first home game, their home opener. They beat the Revolution 2-1 to one in Montreal. I just really respected how the impact went about this game offensively, especially. The Revs sat back in sort of a 4-4-2 block and dared the impact to break them down, which is something that we're going to see over and over again from teams this season, kind of daring the impact to do much of anything with the ball. And and they sort of did, and they sort of didn't. And I'll explain what that means. So the impact, I thought, showed some promising moments in possession. Um, they had sort of, out of Thierry Henry's preferred shape, it looks a little bit more like a 3-4-3 in possession. Um, it looks more like a 5-4-1 when they're without the ball. But in that 3-4-3 in possession, we started to see them look a little bit more comfortable with the ball. Part of that comes down, I think, to the Revs' inability to pressure very well. But also, they were moving the ball a little bit better across their back three. Sometimes Boyan would drop into midfield to give them a numerical advantage against that Revs' 4-4-2 block. Boyan would drop in and play with Piet and Tider in midfield, giving them a 3-B-2 in those spaces. Then the wing backs would push high. The, the other wingers would tuck inside a little bit and sometimes it even resemble a 3-3-4 but that's not even where the impact did their real damage in this game the revs dared them to possess and they said okay we'll possess a little bit but we're still going to hit you with our two favorite things and i think that's set pieces and i think that's attacking transition their first goal came from a corner kick from maxi ruti that joel waterman headed to the back post for Romal kyoto to finish to to get them on the board and then their second goal came in attacking transition they won the ball with a little bit of counter pressure rod fanny uh, the 67 year old center back he's not really that old but it kind of seems like it sometimes <laughs> (laughs) (laughs) An old center back still dribbles forward, breaks the first line of pressure. Matt Doyle had a great video about this on Twitter. Go check that out if you haven't seen it already. He breaks pressure. Tidare then gets the ball. He plays it up to Ruti. Ruti, who chips Matt Turner for one of the favorite, one of my favorite goals of the weekend. But I mean, that's what I love so much about this performance in Montreal is they showed some possession ability, some glimpses, um, but they also capitalized in their two preferred areas of attacking, which is to sit a little bit deeper, sometimes transition forward or step high pressure, then win the ball in transition. And then those set pieces come in and clutch. I like that. That's a thorough little tidbit there. I mean, I watched the whole game. I might as well say something about it, right? Um, it's good. Jordan, it's good. what do you have for your first and your first and only tactical tidbit? I'm not going to lie to you. I was watching the first part of Portland and Minnesota, and I might have dozed off a little because <laughs> it just 
it was it was a hard one to watch, right? It felt like both teams just couldn't quite find the rhythm to break each other down. And it really even if you watch the highlights show, there was a highlight from the third minute when Portland nearly scored. And the next highlight wasn't until the 51st minute when wow. Minnesota actually scored. So there was just a lot of back and forth. And um, so I arised from my slumber right before <laughs> halftime, saw a little bit before uh, the the end of the first 45, but then going into the second half, I felt, I felt like even before Kevin Molino scored the goal, you, you started to see that the way that Minnesota felt like they could break down Portland, that they were going to be in these transition moments. And I thought that even though Molino got man of the match, I think Finley deserves all the credit because his ability to, just break the high pressure of Portland it, on the dribble with his pace, running in behind, whatever it may be. He was a part of all three goals. And I think the first goal where Molino scores, after that, I was really interested to see how Molino would um, handle that, right? Sometimes that's players can get lost after they score. Sometimes it boosts their confidence and they're all over the place. And we saw the latter for Molino. And he, um, in that in that uh, attacking mid spot uh, with Minnesota playing a four, two, three, one, something that we've seen them play a lot. Uh, he has the freedom to drift and create from either side. So he scored the goal from the middle of the field. Then a couple minutes later, he's on the left side, creating in the channel two minutes later on the right side, creating in the channel. I think that the freedom that Minnesota has with Molino to be that creative type is something that's going to really benefit them as they attack and go forward and try to break down opposing teams. No, and I love that. I think Molino brings versatility to that number 10 spot. Darwin Quintero is obviously gone now with the Houston Dynamo. Having Molino in that central attacking midfield spot ahead of Ozzy Alonso and Jan Gregus gives them a little bit it just gives him some fire in that attacking midfield spot. He's he's a player who can play out wide. I mean, you touched on it all, Jordan. You were very thorough and, and good with that analysis. He's a versatile player up there that can combine a little bit maybe with the number nine, and then he's good on the dribble. He can get forward quickly. He brings a lot of unique capabilities to that number 10 spot, and I think we're kind of seeing that attacking midfield position shift a little bit more towards maybe a Molino type of player instead of a, let's say, a Diego Valeri type of player looking at you know the Portland Timbers. Yeah, and he gives you the defensive bite, which you mentioned. He gives you the attacking ability. But I, I think it's interesting that you talk about when when you look at this game, the big names don't stand out, right? It's Finley and Molino are the players that, that stood out. And Finley was just busting his butt up and down the, the right side and was a part of every single goal. And even though there was talk that he had no idea Molino on the second goal was right behind him. Have you seen that goal where Mo- Finley flicks it up over his head to no, play I haven't Molino? Seen it. You got to go back and watch this goal because I think Finley knew exactly what he was doing. <laughs> that He knew where the space was. He saw Molino's run, uh, believed that he would get there. It felt like there was a real uh, belief within the squad of how they could counterattack this Portland Timbers squad and they did it to perfection a few times. It's almost like Minnesota United out-timbered the Timbers a little bit, just because I think... I was thinking the same thing. I was like, you normally think Portland Timbers, they're going to counterattack you with such uh, ferocity or with such... What is the word I'm looking for? Ferocity is good. I like that. I like that a lot. Yeah, ferocity. And it was the opposite. I think that Minnesota did a really good job of beating them to the punch a few times. 
Yeah, that's huge for them. I think that's how they're going to play primarily this season under Adrian Heath. If they can really master that system, they can sit a little bit deeper, then get forward quickly and do that very, very well. They're going to be hard to play against. They're going to be a real pain to play against for pretty much every team in Major League Soccer this season. So that's my little tactical tidbit. What you got one more for us, Jeff. I've got one more. I went through and watched uh, Houston Dynamo's home draw against the Los Angeles Galaxy. The game ended 1-1. We got to see Tab Ramos's, you know, starting first game in Major League Soccer in that 4-3-3 shape. I was just going to say, what was the one, the one takeout I had of this game with LA Galaxy is that... Uh, the announcer said Chicharito, even when Chicharito wasn't even involved in the play at all. I felt like that should have been our tally as, as opposed to Beckham's tally. Yeah, we have a little thing going on with how many times we see Beckham on national television. It was a lot in that ESPN game. There's a lot of those two guys. I think those will probably be the two most mentioned figures in Major League Soccer throughout this entire season. But you're not talking, I mean, you're talking a little bit about Chicharito, but not all about him right now. No, yeah. I mean, I've, I'm going to touch a little bit on him. For me, and I think for almost everyone in this game, the big star was Christian Pavon. I mean, he had that first goal that's making the rounds on Twitter still off of David Bingham's really, really nice goal. Not a goal kick, but he lobbed that thing out there. It was perfect. It was so perfect. Bingham's pass to him. It looked like, you know, if you'd covered my eyes and I'd just seen the ball in the air, I would have said that's Adairson kicking that out to, out to maybe Raheem Sterling or something like that. But Bingham absolutely put his laces through that ball and found Pavon on the left wing. And for me, one of the most interesting things from this game was Pavon's ability to cut inside onto his right foot. He's very right-footed. He likes to cut inside plays as an inverted winger for Guillermo Barasoloto. That right, kind of that right word movement really opened up space for Chicharito and for some other players for the Galaxy. That, for me, was the biggest takeaway from this game. When Pavon dribbles inside, he gives back lines a real choice. He either says, yeah, you can come with me and you can stick with this Argentine World Cup veteran, or you can go and you can stick with Chicharito or you can stick with another of LA Galaxy's attacking players. Maybe that's Alexander Katai, Sebastian Legette, one of those players. He, he forces them to pick because if he's moving to the right, the defense has to decide to shift to their left, you know, Pavon's right, or to, to track an opposing runner who's making kind of a, a crisscross run. So Pavon's cutting inside at an angle. Then, uh, Chicharito a lot in this game shifted out to the left side and made kind of that opposite diagonal run, forcing the opposing backline to choose. There was a sequence in the 74th minute where Pavon and Chicharito sort of ran that crisscross cross pattern. Pavon dribbled inside onto his right foot. Chicharito ran to the left. They made Houston you know, decide who they were going to stick with. In this case, they chose Pavon, which left Chicharito in plenty of space on the left side of the box. Pavon played him the ball. Um, he wasn't able to immediately get a shot off in the box, but Chicharito was composed on the ball as he was being closed down by an opposing defender. Sebastian Legette made a late arriving run into the box. Chicharito just played him a little simple ball across the floor. Sebastian Legette took the shot. It required a good save from Marco Maric in Houston Dynamo's goal. But that sort of attacking combination, we're not going to see the Galaxy possess a whole lot this season, I don't think. But in transition, when they can get the ball forward to Pavon in particular, keep an eye out for those crisscross runs because I think we could see a lot of goals or at least a lot of chances created from that type of movement from the Galaxy this year. Yeah, absolutely. I I felt like their movements start to scare you a little bit when those two are running at you. It's terrifying because, like, Jordan, I don't know who I would pick in that situation. Like, you got to stop the ball, but also you're going to leave a great goal scorer in plenty yeah. of space on the left side. I mean, there's no way to win, essentially. And that's exactly what the Galaxy want. Especially when Pavone can also rip one from distance. Exactly. There's It's a literal no-win situation. Um, so I'm hoping that the Galaxy at least are going to score a few goals like that, even just for entertainment value alone. Yeah, we'll take it. 
Jordan, to close out this episode, we're going to go through a handful of listener questions. As we talked about at the top of the show, so many questions. We wish we could get to them all. We tried to pick ones that we, we could really speak to because we're not able to watch all of these games. We're going to cover every team on this show on a regular basis, but we can't do every single team in one episode. There's not enough hours in the day for that sort of thing. We are but two people, not an army. Um, no one wants to hear us talk that long either. That's true. It would take like three hours for us to get through everyone, and that's that's far too long, <laughs> even for me to want to talk and for you to want to listen to me. So we right, we, co- exactly. we tried to just pick out the questions that we could speak to. We are very thankful for all of these questions. It's something that we're hoping to do on a regular basis because it does allow us to, to talk about a lot of different topics from around the league. So, Jordan, why don't you go ahead and start us off with these first couple of questions? All right. Our first question is from Vaughn Pullman. He said, which MLS newcomers stood out week one and will have a lasting impact on their teams? Oh, OK. So for me. I, I really like Thiago Santos for FC Dallas. I think that's a big one, but we already talked about mm-hmm. him a little bit. So I'm going to go with Eunice Nomley for the Colorado Rapids. I watched that game, the first game of the season on Saturday. Not necessarily the best opener for Major League Soccer, but Nomley really did stand out to me. DC United did a good job of closing off space in midfield, but when Nomley was able to get the ball on that super strong left foot that Daryl and I talked about, he's lethal. He's just so clearly a, a level above almost all these other players that were on the field. His ability to drive forward with the ball was so amazing to watch. He just through space. He looks like he knows what to do in almost every situation. As Robin Frazier gets more time with Nomaly and he gets to the point where he can play a full 90 minutes, he came off early in this match. I mean, he's going to be just so difficult for opposing defenses to deal with wherever Frazier chooses to use him, whether that's as a central attacking midfielder like he was in this game, or maybe in a little bit of a wider spot on the right side so he can cut in and do a similar thing to Pavone on the left side. Nomaly could do that on the right side for Colorado. So Nomaly is definitely my yeah. choice for a newcomer who will have a lasting impact yeah. and who stood out a little bit in week one. What about for you, Jordan? He's super smooth. I'm going to go with LAFC player Francisco Janela. And I actually, after watching this game, Janela didn't stand out too much to me in the first half. And I think that's kind of what you want from a, a six. You want a player who sits in, distributes, does some of the dirty work, but is not impacting the game in maybe a way that is super notable, right? They just do all the things right in the right time and that's kind of what I felt like Janela did in the, the first half until he was moved up into more of an eight when Atuesta came on. I really liked him when Atuesta came on because I felt like Janela was then able to turn on a little bit more of his creativity, didn't have so many defensive responsibilities in sitting in the pocket and denying the counterattacks for uh, Inter-Miami. And he came to life a little bit more. He got on the ball more. He was able to distribute and show some of his skill so I'm interested to see how, if you're Bob Bradley, how you work out this midfield because you got a lot of good pieces and how do they all fit together? It's a literally, it's an impossible puzzle. It, you never know which guys to play where. They have so many bodies in for just those three spots. It's such a great problem to have. It's a good problem. So those are our week one newcomers, but honestly, that one alone, we could go on forever. So we're going to move on to the next question. We had two similar questions from Drew Olson and one from Ira Jersey. And Drew asked, did any team throw out something tactical that you didn't expect and or might be interesting to watch as the season progresses. And Ira said, what is the biggest tactical surprise or wrinkle of the weekend in your opinion? So Joe, you're going to hit us with something that you saw. Yeah, so I tried to pick something from a game that we hadn't already talked about. I I got to watch um, most of the first half of San Jose Earthquakes. 2-2 draw with Toronto FC, a late comeback for the San Jose Earthquakes. But the biggest thing was not 
for me that stood out was not the comeback. It was actually how Mateus Almeida set up his 4-3-3 shape. In the past with the earthquakes, we've seen him use a little bit of a 4-3-3, but also sometimes a 4-2-3-1 with Judson in alongside, you know, Jackson Yor, Anibal Godoy, who is now with Nashville SC. A little bit of a, a more defensive approach to midfield. In this game, Almeida really went for it. <laughs> with that man marking shape, he decided to go all in on attacking players. His, his 4-3-3 shape had Jackson Yule, who's kind of a possession-minded central midfielder, not He's growing defensively, I think he is, but he's still, he's an offensive contributor first and foremost. Magnus Eriksson, who played as a central attacking midfielder for them last year, as more of a number eight, or if sometimes even dropping a little bit deeper alongside Ewell, and then Vako as one of the central midfielders, and he's, at least in the past when I've seen him, he's played more as a winger. And so you have this really stacked mm-hmm. offensive midfield, which I, I think was intentional from Almeida because of how Greg Vanny's team defended them. Vanny set his team back in a 4-4-2 block that was pretty deep for most of the game. They sat deep Force the, force the earthquakes to penetrate that block. And I think Almeida's thinking was, if I bring in enough guys who have talent on the ball and creativity to complement our front line, we'll be able to break them down. It didn't necessarily go that way, especially in the first half. But having such a, an offensively minded midfield, I think is something definitely to keep an eye on for the quakes. How are they able to keep up with the opposing runners in the, in the defensive side of things with the man marking system? And then are they able to use those offensive players to, to truly break down a defensive block if Almeida chooses to continue that sort of thing in the future? I love it. Jordan, next question here we have from Thomas. How do the Galaxy change their system to better fit Chicharito? They they played exactly like they did last year, and I'm hoping you noticed that something I didn't, Thomas said. Give me some hope. So, Jordan, do we have any hope for Thomas? Thomas, it's the first game of the season. You got to draw. Not bad, especially away from home. Are you losing all hope already? I know you're losing all hope. Um, Thomas, I'm just here to tell you there is hope. And I just think don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. There is so much to look forward to with this team as uh, Chicharito has just really been introduced to them, just started training not too long ago. So they're also getting used to each other. I would say, as Joe mentioned, Pavone's isolation on the left side, his ability on the ball, he's going to be someone that is only going to make Chicharito better because he's going to, create they're going to do this op- opposing thing to each other right joe like eyeballs are going to go to chicharito it's going to give pavone a little bit more yeah. space so eyeballs are going to go to pavone it's going to give chicharito a little bit more space so uh, thomas take a deep breath we're in week one of mls season it is a long season don't lose hope buddy just just briefly to cut in and throw a little cold water onto that i think thomas is right at least with part of this question they they did pretty much play exactly like they did under Guillermo Barcelona last season at least to my eye i thought the basic premise is not going to change um for the galaxy Barcelona doesn't really care about dominating the ball he'd rather get out in transition and and that it's week one right it, that could change but i'm not expecting it to change um so I think part of partly there is reason for concern, but getting a full season with Pavon, getting Chicharito, who we, I think we both think is a better fit for the Galaxy and just a better fit for a modern soccer team than Ibrahimovic was for the Galaxy. There's plenty of time. We didn't even see Jonah Dos Santos in this game. It's okay to be patient. Exactly. I was thinking that too. It's okay to be patient. I think we are going to see the Galaxy be very, very dangerous this season. All right, Jordan, next right. question. I'm going to ask this one to you. Ethics Nerd asked us on Twitter, once BWP and Dio are healthy and fit again, what do you think is LAFC's best option for an attacking trio? And are there certain situations where you think Bob Bradley might deviate from that optimal trio? Okay, so optimal trio, I think we saw it, right? And I, I think when you have Rossi, Vela, and Rodriguez, that you're going to want to play those three. 
but there's going to be teams that you play against where you want a little bit more of a traditional number nine, and you're going to be able to bring Dio in and hold up play a little bit more. What I think that they saw, what we all saw with Rossi playing in that number nine position is he's still a playmaker in that position. So one of the things that I think makes LAFC so difficult to play against is they are always changing lines. It's the number nines coming off the center back, trying to pull them out of position. And then the attacking mid is driving through that gap that then that the nine just created because the center back was pulled out and that kind of movement. And then, on top of that, many other movements LAFC does. I think that's just one of the things that they do really, really well. And with those three up top, they all have that ability to play nearly anywhere in that front five. Yeah, and I agree with you, Jordan, on that optimal front three. I think Rossi is the most interesting number nine on this roster at the very least. I think he's still growing into that position, but just seeing him play such an integral part in their one goal against Inter-Miami, coming in off the center back, flicking the ball over to Vela on that right side. He has all the tools. His movement is so good in the box and around the box. He's quick. He can get in behind the back line. He's a great great player for that spot. The one thing I worry about is, is sometimes in front of net, he misses sitters. Hmm. As a number nine, you can't miss those sitters. Like I think it was the Champions League game. I can't remember if it was – it must have been the second leg at home. He missed an absolute sitter right in front of goal. And um, that, that's something if you're playing the number nine and you get a ball threaded in a seam to you uh, in a little bit of space in the box, that uh, this is a team who expects you to put that away. And that gets to the second part of this question. Are there situations – if we can agree, Jordan, that that – kind of the three-winger front line is the best shape for them. There are going to be certain situations where Bob Bradley doesn't go with that shape. If he's trying to get some some minutes for the strikers off the bench, that's definitely an option. If Rossi is not converting those chances, that's another option. Maybe they also need some physicality in the front line. Rossi's yeah. a fast guy. He's quick. He's not the biggest. He's pushed down pretty easily. He likes to roll a little bit too. Um, so if they're looking for a little more muscle in the front line, that's big. Also, Rossi's not going to be here almost certainly for the whole season. Or I mean, I have a hard time believing that. I don't have any detail on that, but it seems like he's likely to be one of the first players sold from this LAFC squad. So once he's gone, I think it's key for Bradley just to be able to put Bradley Wright Phillips or Diamande into that number nine spot, have Rodriguez on the left, Vela on the right, and all is good. All is good. It's nice to have those options off the bench once they get healthy as well. Yeah, that's big for them. Um, Jordan, why don't you hit us with the next question? All right, Kevin Minkus wants to know which tactical thing from this weekend seems the least sustainable. Very narrow DC United comes to mind. To give a little bit of context to the last bit of Kevin's question, you know, talking about a very narrow DC United, I think that's a great shout, Kevin. Um, they're, they had sort of no real right winger in this game. Gressel was playing as a central attacking midfielder. Flores likes to come inside. Um, and then Canales was playing right back, and he's not a right back. He's a central midfielder. So they didn't have much ability in wide areas. I think eventually we're going to see Gressel shift out there, and Ben Olsen will accept that he's probably a better fit for that right wing spot than he is as a central attacking midfielder. So that's a really good one because then they DC United don't have anyone to really play the ball in and provide width on the wing, which allows the opposing defense to play, to just sit deep, be compact in a, in a narrow way, both, you know, horizontally and vertically. They don't have to worry too much about stepping out to the wing, the left side of their defense, the right side of DC United's attack. So Kevin, I think that's a good one. One other thing for me, not so much of a tactical thing that doesn't seem sustainable, but Inter-Miami's back line is a huge problem right now. Alvis Powell, Ben Sweat, Roman Torres, in my opinion, they're not starting quality MLS players. They're not fast enough to keep up with the pace of the league at this point. LAFC exposed them time after time. Not every team is LAFC, but these guys really don't bring a whole lot with or without the ball. And I think Diego Alonso is going to be praying for reinforcements before too long. 
when I saw Miami pick up Alvis Powell, I was shocked because I, this is a team who, you know, if you think about building a squad, you want to build a, a team with a strong solidified back line. At least that's where I would start. And I just don't feel like that it would be the player that I would choose right off the bat. We've got only a couple more questions here. Jordan, I'm going to pose these to you. We had a few Joseph Martinez-related questions. Joseph tore his ACL in that match with Nashville SC in the second half. He's out for the season. Um, First of all, we have one from Jesse. Who can step up for Atlanta? One from Hoffman FC. What does Atlanta do without Joseph Martinez? And Daniel, what is the best-case scenario for Atlanta now with Joseph's injury? Jordan, how are they going to replace Joseph Martinez as their number nine? It's a really hard question. First, my heart just breaks so much for him. It's just, I've been through that situation three times. I know how hard it is physically. I know how hard it is mentally. And just the the league isn't as good without Joseph Martinez. And I think that's where my answer comes to this question is that you don't replace Joseph Martinez. How can you? Who he is on the field, who he is off the field for this squad. I think it's going to be a really big ask for them to try to find somebody who brings what he can bring. So I think not putting those expectations on anybody and knowing that players around him have the ability now to step up and do what they are hoping for them to do. Barcos got a goal. Pitti Martinez um, has outwardly said I need to be better this year. So I don't know who the player is. I don't know who they can go. I I'm imagining they're going to go look for somebody um, that it's not going to come from within the squad. Or even if it does, you need depth at that number nine spot. But um, gosh, it's just hard to think of because I'm just so heartbroken for him. Yeah. It's sad for Joseph Martinez as well. Difficult situation for Atlanta United. They came in with two true number nines on the roster, Joseph Martinez and then Adam John, who they brought in from Phoenix Rising in USL. What a great season in USL, undoubtedly, but he was not supposed to be the starter. So right now he's the only number nine that they actually have. They need another guy. They probably need a starting caliber number nine. John can fill in temporarily. I've seen him play a number of times in person. He's good on the ball. He can hold up play, really allow Barco and Pitti Martinez to be the true playmakers in the squad, but he's no Joseph Martinez replacement. Not that anyone's going Mm -hmm. to be. So my guess is that they're going to go out. The transfer window that's open right now is open until May 5th. So they have time to go get a guy that they like, that they think can fill in. Not a DP. They have all three DP spots used on both Martinez's and Barco. But they have the time. They have the ability. They have a good scouting department. Atlanta United usually hits on their signings. I wouldn't be too distraught. Obviously, yes, Atlanta fans, this is a devastating situation, devastating news for the club. But Atlanta United are still going to be very competitive once they get that new number nine, mm-hmm. especially. They're still going to be towards the top of the East, at least in my estimation. Maybe not in contention for that number one spot anymore, but this is still a very good squad that has a real shot at competing in the Eastern Conference. Do you do you agree with that, Jordan? I do. I think there's two ways that teams can go. Sometimes it can be really devastating to a team and um, just losing someone of that just who he is, like not even who he is as a player, who he is for this squad and in the locker room and uh, his personality, I think is going to be tough for them to lose. So they can either go that way or they can say, Hey, we got to do this for Joseph. Right. And, Mm -hmm. and band together and say like, Hey, we have a good squad, kind of the things that you just mentioned. So uh, we'll see which side of the table they'll be on. We will. One other team that's high, likely to be high up in the Eastern Conference table this season, at least they have the potential to do so with some of the players that they brought in. Jordan is your Columbus crew. We have a question from another Jordan, from Jordan Molnar. What were Jordan's thoughts on the crew, what they need to improve, and how good Lucas Zellerayon is? Jordan, what did you think of the Columbus crew, and especially with Zellerayon? 
I'll start with, it was really hard to tell, you know, the red card three minutes into the match for Chanel for New York City FC. And that just makes everything change. And I was really disappointed. I, Joe, you and I spoke about this. This is one of the matchups in week one that we were like, oh, this is going to be good. Uh, all the hype around the crew, all the hype around New York City from last year, mm-hmm. returning nearly everybody. There's so many good things that could have played out in this game as far as like uh, what we would like as tactical nerds. But <laughs> it kind of got thrown out in in that first after that first three minutes. So everything you're prepping for, especially if you're the crew, you've really been prepping for New York City over the last two, three weeks uh, because they've been playing in Champions League. You've gotten a chance to watch them a little bit more. Uh, so everything gets thrown out when they sit in a lower block. Then you're just trying to break down a a block like that high or really deep in your attacking zone. It's very difficult to break that down. And I think we saw that. Um, So I don't know. I don't know what I take out of it. I take out that they managed a way to get the win and dealt with some counterattacks that they're going to have to look at how they deal with that going forward. Um, Then Lucas Celerion, he's worth every dollar. He's so good. He's going to be really good. Not only has the ability to dribble out of situations, he um, uh, made one defender nearly trip over themselves with his uh, a cutback in the attacking third. He distributed a lot when he was in the attack, and then I think that's what made his goal so special is because nearly every time he got into the attacking third before that, he was distributing. And then his goal, he was like, nope, I'm going for it. And, and it, it just threw the defense off, in my opinion. He could be such a... a- great change of pace for the cruise attack this season. He has the speed. He has the creative ability. All the things that you mentioned, Jordan, I have not gotten the chance to watch the crew yet this season. This match, as you said, is a little bit of a unique one. But going forward, keeping an eye on Zellerion and on the cruise attack, especially as they move forward up the field, that's going to be fascinating to me, and I'm excited to watch it. We've got one more question here. One final question from Jeff Kazmier. Jordan, I'm going to pose this to you. Positive or negative, what's the biggest overreaction from Major League Soccer's Week 1? My answer was week one. That's our that's our answer. Uh, everything's an overreaction. We don't know enough about teams. Week one, you kind of just go with the flow, notice some things, and then continue to build. Uh, it's a long season, Joe. No, it is. And I think the reason why we end on this question is kind of everything's an overreaction. Like, the show's probably an overreaction. You need a bigger sample size, essentially. That's what it comes down to. These are just data points. We're going to build more data points as the season progresses. That doesn't mean that it wasn't fun to go in and watch these games in this first bit of the season. But, I mean, it's hard to take any grand conclusions away just from, other than maybe a few notable tactical things or personnel things that we noticed. We don't want to, we want to be careful not to go too deep on anything in this first week. We'll be able to go into more depth and really analyze more trends as the season goes. It's just going to keep getting better and better. It is. It is. And that's the fun thing about the season is you can go along. You learn so much. The games get better. The teams grow closer together. The chemistry improves. All of those things are going to happen as the season progresses. And I'm excited to be along for the ride and to get to talk about it. Yeah, we're already on to week two. Jordan, we took a big bite out of the league this week. We didn't get to talk about every team. If you're a fan of one of the teams we didn't talk about, don't worry. We're going to hit on different teams next week and the week after. We're going to rotate through and make sure we hit everybody. That way we're spreading the love and we're getting to talk tactics about each one of these teams. And if you have specific questions, let us know. You can always tweet at one of us, um, resp- respond to anything that we tweet about, talking about MLS Assist and uh 
email us too, right, Joe? Yeah, you can email us. Our email address is mlsassist at totalsoccershow.com. So yeah, you can hit at us on Twitter or you can email us. Either way, we'd love to get back to you and have a conversation with you, even if that's off air instead of on air. So Jordan, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me today. I had a great time chatting about week one with you and I look forward to next week's episode. Thanks so much, Joe. 